For the most part, people seem pleased with the movie's feminist message, angry white men excluded, judging by early box office returns. But as long as the Department of Defense can pick and choose which films to support while offering a cheaper, more authentic alternative to costly CGI, some worry that Captain Marvel's feminism has become a Trojan horse for military propaganda. They're killing a few birds with one stone with Captain Marvel, says Dr. Roger Stahl, a professor of communication studies at the University of Georgia, who studies the relationship between Hollywood and the military. They're recruiting, they're rehabilitating the image of the Air Force, and they're appealing to an elusive but desirable demographic, namely women. Those are two paragraphs from a story by Samuel Braslow in LA Magazine titled, Captain Marvel's Feminism is All Tangled Up with Military Boosterism. He noted the criticisms of the film's use as a recruiting tool for the Air Force, but also mentions that this isn't the first time the United States military has used the blockbuster film for recruitment and brings up the first movie that I remember made me interested in the military, 1986's Top Gun. As a boy in the 1980s, it was pretty hard not to want to be in the armed forces in some capacity. My friend DJ and I pretended we were Maverick and Goose while on the swings of our elementary school playground. Tom, Evan, and I ran around our backyards with our realistic-looking Entertech water guns acting out elaborate search and rescue operations based on movies like Commando, Predator, Rambo, Missing in Action, and American Ninja. And of course, we came home every afternoon from school to watch G.I. Joe, a real American hero. The protagonists of these films and TV shows were superheroes for the decade a package of the American ideal of patriotism that had been a key element of films that retold the story of the Second World War and the rugged attitude, sometimes mixed with individualism, that was the mainstay of television westerns of the 1950s and 1960s. Ronald Reagan had, in 1984, proclaimed that it was morning in America again, and it was through our action and cartoon heroes that we were going to win the Cold War. In the end, you can make a case that kind of says that's how we did it. This is Fallen Walls, Open Curtains.
Now, I never did join the military. I considered applying to Annapolis when a few good men put the idea in my head that I could be a JAG lawyer, but I ultimately left any Top Gun and G.I. Joe-fueled fantasies of piloting an F-14 Tomcat or shooting a machine gun behind just as the Department of Defense began cutting costs and canceled Grumman contracts for the fighter jet, leaving a big chunk of Long Island's jobs behind with it. Despite Desert Storm, the 90s were an era where there was little profit to be seen from the classic 80s action military shoot-em-up film, and the blockbuster landscape shifted from that to disaster films and alien invasions. But that's the entertainment landscape after the time frame of this miniseries. What I'm here to talk about is the Cold War, the 1980s, and the height of the Reagan-era film, action flicks that were very often America forward, and two in particular that we can say with a bit of tongue planted firmly in cheek, won the Cold War, Red Dawn and Rocky IV. And I'll be looking at those in the second half of this, the eighth episode, A Fallen Walls Open Curtains, a podcast miniseries brought to you by the Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. And for part one of this episode, I'm going to see where we are 30 years later, which is the looking at the events from June to August of 1991. And I'm going to have a special focus on the attempted coup that took place in the Soviet Union in August of 91. So let's go ahead and get all of the other events out of the way, and then I'll get to that attempted coup in mid-August, of, mid to late August of 91. So on June 4th, Fatos Nano resigned as the Prime Minister of Albania following a nationwide strike. The President of Albania, Ramiz Alia, appoints Yuli Bufius as his successor. On June 5th, South Africa repealed the last legal foundations of apartheid, and I'd like to point out that even though this isn't completely on topic, just because it's, you know, this is a Cold War podcast, uh, South Africa's apartheid policy begins begins around like 1948 and ends in the, around 90, 90, 91 here. Um, it is a construct of leftover colonialist policies prior to the Second World War, etc., uh, and and we can you can have a whole discussion to look at the history of of how it came about and how the the white how it was put in place to keep the white power structure in place et cetera et cetera and if you're looking for a really good novel about it I would recommend the novel Cry the Beloved Country outstanding novel about the beginning of apartheid but there is a you know it, it coincides with the length of the Cold War and apartheid and. And the imprisonment of Nelson Mandela, and um, you know, there, there's, there is an intersection here and there, and it's, it, it is a very relevant event for 1990-1991, and to be honest, it was just another thing that made that very early 90s period of revolution of change very, very hopeful. So I just wanted to include it here. Um, on June 12th, Boris Yeltsin is elected to the president of the Russian Soviet Federalist um, Socialist Republic. Uh, he officially begins his term on July 10th, and um, he is going to be very, very important post-Cold War, of course, but during this coup that I'm going to talk about in a little bit. Uh, the Party Labor of Albania is also dissolved and succeeded by the Socialist Party of Albania, then that marks the end of communist rule in Albania. 
June 20th in West Germany, uh, the Bundestag voted to move the capital from Bonn to Berlin. June 25th, Croatia and Slovenia declared their independence from Yugoslavia, something I talked about um, in a recent episode. On June 28th, the dissolution of the Soviet Union, Comic-Con, Comic-Con, not Comic-Con, that's a San Diego thing, uh, is dissolved in Moscow, Russia, and this is a part of the communist uh, structure. July 1st, this is important as well, the Warsaw Pact is officially dissolved in Prague. Uh, Remember, we have, a, and NATO still exists, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and a number of the republics that were in the Warsaw Pact joined NATO. And the NATO was a, a treaty organization, an alliance formed of, quote, democratic, free Western nations in the, in the United States, Canada, and parts of Europe uh, to ally ourselves to make sure that the Soviet communist threat did not spread too far, especially into Europe during the uh, Cold War, the Warsaw Pact was the counterpart. The Warsaw Pact was the counterpart to NATO in the Eastern Bloc. But with the Eastern Bloc falling apart and many of the countries or all of the countries that were once Soviet satellite states throwing off the uh, control of the Soviet Union, the Warsaw Pact was rendered inept. So it was officially dissolved at this point. So that really does mark yet another another benchmark on the way toward the final dissolution of the Soviet Union at the end of the Cold War. Uh, in July 7th, the 10-day war in Slovenia, which I described in a previous episode, ends. That was uh, the Brioni Agreement ended that. On July 16th, Soviet Premier Gorbachev arrived in London to ask for aid from the leaders of the G7. And then on July 31st, President Bush, George H.W. Bush, would visit Moscow with uh, to meet with Gorbachev and sign the START One Treaty. And there are important events of the singing revolution that go on in July and August. Um, you have the, uh, and this is something I detailed in an episode last year that, uh, you know, when we talked about Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia. Now, on July 1st, you have the Soviet Special Purpose Police Unit killing seven Lithuanian customs officers. Uh, this is one of the uh, deadliest Soviet uh, assaults on Lithuanian border, border posts. Um, fast forwarding to August 20th, Estonia declared its independence from the Soviet Union, and then Latvia did the same thing the next day. And then on the 22nd, Iceland became the first nation to recognize the independence of those Baltic states. The U.S. would recognize their independence on September 2nd, and the Soviet Union uh, would eventually do so officially on September 6th. On August 23rd, Russia restored the red, white, and blue, or sorry, white, blue, and red tricolor as its national flag. Um, this is one that existed way before the Soviet Union from back in the, uh, you know, back prior to the First World War. Um, and then we do start to see the Soviet Union start to essentially split apart as late August rolls in. Ukraine declares its independence on August 24th. Belarus declares its independence on August 25th. Moldova declares its independence on August 27th. Azerbaijan declares its independence on August 30th. Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan declare their independence 
on August 31st, and Tajikistan will follow suit on September 9th. And uh, the Serb-Croat War begins on August 25th. So we we have, again, after after a few months where there was kind of not a complete lull, uh, in the revolution period in the Soviet uh, bloc, things had slowed down. 1989 and early 1990 was just a lot, a lot at once. And for a lot of the late 1990 into 1991, you have things that are happening, but they're happening more gradually, a little bit slower. Um, and in some cases, the the work that has to be done post-revolution is taking place. So it's not as dramatic as, say, uh, demonstrations in the Berlin Wall or, or, or riots in Romania or, you know, the singing revolution, et cetera, et cetera, which is going on at this time. Um, but this is a volatile month for the Soviet Union. This is a volatile period for the Soviet Union, especially August. And that's what I'm going to focus on for this episode. So I wanted to get through that because I'm going to go into some length about the attempted coup that took place in the Soviet Union, specifically in Moscow, starting on August 18th and ending on August 21st of 1991, which is when I mentioned just a few couple of seconds ago, the breakup that happened, the Ukraine and all these other Soviet socialist republics like Kyrgyzstan, et cetera, declaring their independence in late August this coup, this attempted coup, um, exacerbated it or was an attempt to stop that from happening, but there is a relation to it. Not core, there's a correlation, not necessarily a causation. It was probably inevitable, but you can see the sequence of events as we go through it and you're like, okay, it's no wonder that we were on the road to this anyway. So this coup or attempted coup. I need to say attempted coup because it was not successful. But this attempted coup was an attempt by communist hardliners to take down Soviet Premier Mikhail Gorbachev and stop the reform that had been taking place during the past half decade via perestroika and glasnost. Military coup were, no, they were not unheard of at this point. I think, you know, we, we were all familiar with them. Although I will say, I think that the Western world had come to think of them as the type of thing that happened in what they deemed second or quote, third world countries, you know, Latin America, Africa, Asia, like those parts of the world. So, and it's not something that you would have expected in one of the world's superpowers. Now, coups were always news when they happened, of course, especially the periods of the Cold War. And um, they marked just another sign of a very fragile sense of stability in in various regions of the world. But to have it happen in the Soviet Union was entirely different. We'd been used to Soviet transitions of power being peaceful. Of course, the Soviet Union was not a democratic country, and since Stalin, the transition of power had been more akin to succession than election. But I can imagine that the Soviets understood the dangers of a power vacuum after Premier's death, especially after the fight between Stalin and Trotsky after Lenin. Uh, There certainly was political gamesmanship afoot whenever transition of power happened, so it's not like the czarist Russia where it was a literal line of royal succession. But, you know, it still was relatively peaceful compared to 
a civil war breaking out whenever there was a needed transition of power. Gorbachev was not dying. He was not ending a term. Uh, Soviet premiers essentially stayed there for life or, or unless they were ousted. And since Stalin, it was death that was the turnover. You had Stalin, Khrushchev, Brezhnev, and between Brezhnev and Gorbachev, you had like two or three people. It was just this rotating door because the Soviet premiers kept dying, and this was in the very late 70s, early 1980s. Gorbachev came into power in 1985. So Gorbachev was not dying. He was not ending a term. But because of both of his reforms and what looked like this looming breakup of the USSR, this was on the horizon. There was a possible power transfer in the works. It looked like Gorbachev's days were numbered anyway because of what the unknown future of the Soviet Union was. And anyone on the outside of the Iron Curtain with a passing knowledge of who was in charge, I think they could assume that Gorbachev would remain in power to steer what was left of the Soviet Union as more of the republics broke off. So I think, and this is just conjecture on my part, many people, laymen, so to speak, did see the Soviet Union still existing in a much smaller capacity, possibly, as opposed to, say, what it was at the moment. But the hardliners I mentioned, many of whom were military officials, saw this path away from the authoritarian state as a loss of their personal power. And when authoritarians are afraid that they are going to lose personal power, they try to keep it with, by whatever means possible, and very often that is by force, and therefore they plotted a coup. Now, before I get to how this unfolded, let me give you a rundown of the players in these events. So on one side, we have the established Soviet government and the Russian government. Remember, these were two separate governing bodies. Russia was part of the Soviet Union. It was the largest part of the Soviet Union, but it was part of the Soviet Union. Gorbachev was the Soviet premier. Boris Yeltsin had just been elected president of Russia in June. So... I'm trying to think of like an equivalent here in the United States, and, and the best one I can come up with, it's, it's a much smaller scale because Washington, D.C. is not is nowhere near, I don't even think Washington, D.C. is as big as Moscow, but um, you have Joe Biden is the president of the United States and governs from Washington, D.C., but Washington, D.C. itself is an independent city with a mayor and a government, and that mayor is Muriel Bowser, so in that sense. So if, if uh, the capital of the United States was Philadelphia, you, Boris Yeltsin would be the governor of Pennsylvania and Mikhail Gorbachev would be the president of the United States. All right. So just kind of giving you guys a little bit of a context here because very often during the Cold War, people used Russia and the Soviet Union interchangeably and they technically were two separate political bodies, even if they worked in tandem. So... Yeltsin. Yeltsin's really, really important to the story. He is on Gorbachev's side, but he will become the most important f figure in our relationship with the former Soviet Union after the USSR broke up in 91 because he's going to be the president of Russia. Furthermore, the way he stands up to the coup here in Moscow solidifies his reputation and his own power in the Soviet Union and in Russia. Now, on the other side of this are the people who plan the coup, and they are a committee called the State Committee on the State of Emergency, SCSC. 
They're made up of what have been referred to as the, quote, Gang of Eight. You love those nicknames, right? Because it's a clear reference to the Gang of Four who planned the uh, Chinese Cultural Revolution in the 1960s, you know, Mao Zedong's wife and uh, three other people. Anyway, back to this, the Gang of Eight. They were... And I apologize, I'm going to do my best to pronounce these Russian names correctly, but please uh, please know I mean no offense if I am butchering them. Gennady Yanayev, he was the leader of the group and he was poised to become the Soviet premier if the coup succeeded. Dmitry Yazov, Vladimir Krychkov, Boris Pugo, Vasily Starodubstev, Alexander Tiziaev, Oleg Blachlanov, Valentin Pavlov. And also of note is that each side of the belligerents here had the support of various Soviet republics, support that was pretty much split down the middle. Nine republics threw their support behind the coup. Another nine defended Gorbachev. And if you think of it, this actually undercuts the images that we have in the United States or that we had in the United States for years. You know, the propaganda that we had about Russia and the Soviet Union was that Russia, either either everybody, depending on the decade you're looking at, either they were all kind of this monolithic, evil communist people, or as years went on, these were these Soviet oppressed people who wanted the freedom and democracy because of the, the, the boot of the government pressing down on them. This split is really important to note because there were people in the Soviet Union who did not feel oppressed. And it's not that freedom and democracy aren't ideals that I think people should strive for. <laughs> I just would like to point out that there was a good portion of the USSR that was conservative in the sense that they wanted to keep the old system and they did not support Gorbachev's more liberal policies. The coup had been planned a little more than a year prior to 1991, and it was a reaction to Gorbachev's policies as well as the 1989 revolutions in the Eastern Bloc, revolutions that by 1990 were starting to affect the various Soviet republics, especially, as I mentioned, the Baltic states. And that's when I detailed about when I talked about Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia and the singing revolution a number of episodes ago. That, as I mentioned in the beginning of the segment, comes to fruition around this time. If you noticed, Estonia and Latvia declared their independence right in the middle of when this coup is taking place. It might be coincidence. It might be them taking advantage of an unstable situation in, this, in, in Mother Russia. Anyway, in reaction to those revolutions, we have the State of Emergency Committee forming. And on June 17, 1991, Gavril Popov, he's the mayor of Moscow, he sends a warning to the United States ambassador to the Soviet Union, Jack Matlock, about a possible coup attempt. So this is something that was like a known thing. It was a open secret that people were planning to take power from Gorbachev. The U.S. then turned around and used its diplomatic channels to warn Gorbachev. Gorbachev didn't entirely brush it off, but he didn't take it seriously enough. He underestimated how much was being planned. He figured it was kind of an empty threat, not realized that people in his own cabinet were involved in the coup plot. So on July 23rd, 12 Soviet figures, including the Gang of Eight, wrote this, write this open letter called A Word to the People in a hardline newspaper that was known for its anti-perestroika views. It's quite long. I'll link to its full text in the show notes, but here's an excerpt. 
An enormous unforeseen calamity has taken place. Motherland, our land, a great power, giving us to ward with nature, glorious ancestors, it is perishing, breaking apart, falling into darkness and non-being. And this collapse takes place at our silence, toleration, and accord. Brethren, too late are we waking up, are observing the misery when our home is already burning in four corners, when extinguishing this has to be done not by water, but by our own tears and blood. Do we allow for the second time during this century civil discordance and war, again throw ourselves into merciless milestones, set started not by us, that will be grinding the bones of the people, breaking into to the backbone of Russia? Let us unite so as to stop the chain reaction of the disastrous collapse of the state, economy, human personality, in order to contribute to the strengthening of the Soviet power, to the transformation of it into a genuinely people's power and not some manger for the hungry nouveau riche who are ready to sell off everything for the sake of their insatiable appetite. Soviet Union, this is our home and stronghold built with enormous efforts of all the peoples and nations that has saved us from disgrace and slavery at the times of hideous invasions. Russia, unique beloved, she is crying for help. It would be interesting to, and this is a great political science assignment if you ever want to do it, to take a look at that and compare it to other such declarations. The Declaration of Independence. Um the uh, Declaration of Succession from the Confederate States of America, uh, current internet-based calls to action for political action on both sides of the aisle and, and how there is common language about it. Um, if I were still in college taking political science courses, I would totally write a paper about this and the common language used in such declarations. It's, it's fascinating to see those common threads. And it's the fun, you know, just as a tangent here, it's the fun part of studying history and politics and, and political science and things like that, because you, you see those really interesting relationships between them and the way rhetoric evolves over time, but yet has motifs and recurring themes and things like that. And it's, you know, again, it's why we study history because of the way, of the way it echoes. So anyway, back to the coup. So Gorbachev, Yeltsin, and Nursultan Nazarbayev, who is the president of Kazakhstan, they start to discuss ousting all those hardliners in the cabinet. They know something is up. And this meeting is supposed to be secret, but the Gang of Eight has Gorbachev under surveillance, so <laughs> uh, they figure it out. Yeltsin, meanwhile, decides that this is more serious than it's being taken and takes measures to prepare for the coup. He gathers up men in the KGB and the military who he knows are loyal and trustworthy to him, Gorbachev, and you know the other people on their side. So on August 4th, Gorbachev goes on vacation to his Dhaka. This is uh, the Soviet version of like a vacation home for high-ranking officials. Gorbachev was in Crimea, and Crimea was kind of the, oh, Lake Tahoe, Aspen, like if there's like a rich elite in Russia, uh, which is kind of ironic considering Russia was supposed to be a communist state, but the rich elite in Russia, that's where they would go. So he's got his, his vacation home in Crimea, a big piece of property, a compound, if you will. While he's there, he plans to sign the new union treaty. And this is really important. This is a treaty that fundamentally changes the Soviet Union. This is 
going to change how the Soviet Union exists because it replaces the 1922 treaty that created the country. And the new Union Treaty would rename the country. It would Instead of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, it would be called the Union of Soviet Sovereign Republics. The government would be decentralized. The republics would run themselves as quasi-independent countries. If I'm coming up with a U.S. history analogy, it sounds like he was setting up what the United States was from 1783 to about 1787 under the Articles of Confederation, where it seemed like every state was a separate entity and had kind of a loose affiliation in a country called the United States. So with that in mind, and with that treaty looming, this is when the Gang of Eight decides to enact their plan. And on August 17th, they begin to set things in motion. The following day, August 18th, they cut communications at Gorbachev's DACA, which includes access to the nuclear codes. And this is an effort to force the Soviet premier to hand over power, essentially by taking him hostage. After doing so, they force him to, they try to force him to declare a state of emergency. Because if they declared a state of emergency, Yanayev becomes the acting president. And the coup is successful because it's bloodless, because acting, I did air quotes, that goes on as long as Yaniyev wants it to. He can stay in power and, a, and keep a state of emergency going for, I don't know, until he dies, right? Because the idea that Gorbachev will get in power after order was restored, it's just an illusion. It's, it's a way around having to actually use tanks, right? Now, there are conflicting reports about what Gorbachev actually says in response to Yaniyev and the Gang of Eight's request, but what is certain is that he flat out refuses to comply with the demands. It prompts the Gang of Eight, therefore, to enact the military coup, and they're going to take over the government by force, by the military and the KGB. They make their objectives public. Gorbachev remains under house arrest, the hostage to these people, and then they call, the Gang of Eight calls for the arrest of Yeltsin and his allies. On August 19th, the Soviet news agency TASS, T-A-S-S, sends out the following wire, and I'm going to read it verbatim here. And there's things I, I can, uh, I'm going to link to a lot of these things, sources in my show notes, because uh, there's really a, a lot of interesting reading about this out there. So, um, okay, so State of Emergency Committee's resolution. So this is the gang of eight sending out news over the wire uh, to the people, kind of a, hey, you know, it's their effort to smokescreen them to think that things are what they say they are. And as we know, it's not entirely successful. So here we go. Moscow, August, August 19th, tasked the state committee for the state of emergency, issued the following resolution uh, here today. With a view to protecting the vital interest of the peoples and citizens of the USSR and the country's independence and territorial integrity, restoring law and order, Stabilizing the situation, overcoming the gravest crisis, and preventing chaos, anarchy, and a fratricidal civil war, the State Committee for the State of Emergency in the USSR resolves, one, all bodies of authority and administration of the USSR, Union, and Autonomous Republican Territories, regions, cities, districts, villages, and settlements should ensure state of emergency regulations in keeping with the USSR law on legal, on, on the legal state of emergency. I'm sorry, this is hard to read in, in some places because the translation is not great. So they have the state of emergencies resolutions. In the event of their inability to ensure the observance of these regulations, the power of the respective bodies of authority and administration are to be suspended with their functions to be exercised by officials specifically appointed by the state committee for state of emergency. So in other words, 
State of emergency, if you don't comply, we're going to come in and make you comply. Number two, they're going to immediately dismantle the structures of power, administration, and militarized units acting contrary to the constitution of laws of the USSR. Again, how they interpret it. Three, they're going to regard the laws and decisions of the current bodies of power administration that run counter to the Constitution and laws of the USSR being invalid. In other words, all the policies that Gorbachev did no longer valid. You know, in other words, we're we're taking over. We are in charge now. They're going to suspend the activities of political parties, social organization, the mass movement that prevent the normalization of the situation. In other words, tamping down opposition. And then they say, in connection with the inability for health reasons by Mikhail Gorbachev to perform his duties as USSR president, I have assumed the duties of USSR president from August 19th, 1991, on the basis of the USSR constitution, Genady Yanyev. In other words, despite the fact that Gorbachev refused his demands, they're putting out this press release to smokescreen them because and put out a rumor that Gorbachev is sick so that people will believe them and think of understanding it and they'll be concerned for Gorbachev, but they won't see that this is a coup by hardliners. That very same day, they start rolling tanks into Moscow. Three weeks ago today, in the gardens of the Kremlin, Mikhail Gorbachev, absolutely confident about his power. If anybody's writing off Gorbachev, That's a superficial judgment. Today, there are tanks in the streets of Moscow, and Mr. Gorbachev is gone. From ABC, this is a special edition of World News Tonight with Peter Jennings. Good evening. We begin, of course, with the shock that was not a complete surprise. The coup in the Soviet Union has been on the minds of many Soviets for many weeks. There's a lot we know tonight and still a lot we do not know. It is widely believed that the head of the KGB, the defense minister, the minister of the interior, the prime minister, plus Mr. Gorbachev's own vice president, have been planning the coup for weeks, if not months. The Gang of Five, they will surely be called by many Soviets. Tonight, even though they have moved to snuff out centers of democracy in various parts of the country, including radio and television stations in the Baltic republics, they are still not in complete control. Boris Yeltsin, the president of the Russian Republic, defies them and has at least a small segment of the military with him. There's been no word from Mr. Gorbachev, even his specific whereabouts are not known. It is assumed he is not free to do whatever he wants. Our first report from Moscow is from our bureau chief there, Jim Laurie. The playing of somber music on Soviet television was one of the first clues here that something had happened. Some people thought someone important had died. Then the announcement of a state of emergency. President Gorbachev could no longer govern because of his health, the statement said. A new eight-man committee was now in charge. A few hours later, columns of tanks and armored troop carriers rumbled into the center of Moscow. They assumed positions outside the Kremlin and in other strategic locations. People on the streets were stunned. A few shouted insults at the soldiers. One man lay down in front of a tank to try to halt its progress. 
getting out of the way just in time. Many gathered around tanks, berating the soldiers. Others countered, we need law and order. One woman shouted angrily, you are fascists. The head of the National Emergency Committee, Gennady Anayev, later gave reporters his version of what happened to Gorbachev. I should say that Mikhail Sergeyevich Gorbachev is now on vacation. He is undergoing treatment in the south of the country. He has been very tired. He needs more time to feel better. And I hope he will take office again. Yanayev said economic reforms would continue. He promised pay raises and price cuts. But he also announced a ban on strikes and political demonstrations and strict limits on the Soviet press. It was all too much for Boris Yeltsin. As president of the Russian Federation, he had already mounted a challenge to the coup leaders. He defied orders to evacuate his offices. He stood upon a tank surrounded by supporters. It is a coup by criminals, said Yeltsin. He called for a general strike across Russia. As to Gorbachev, Yeltsin, one-time political adversary, sought his return. They won't let us contact the president at his dacha in the Crimea. I spoke to him on Friday by telephone at his dacha. He was well, in good spirits, resting and working on the upcoming Union Treaty. Tomorrow, Gorbachev and Yeltsin were to have signed a treaty which would have given up substantial Kremlin power to the republics. In response to a Yeltsin call to defend the Russian Federation building, thousands of people took to the streets, defying the ruling committee's decrees, marching past the Kremlin and up toward Yeltsin's headquarters. They built barricades. Bus and truck drivers surrounded the building. Tonight, Yeltsin supporters are maintaining an all-night vigil, with army tanks poised just a few yards away. Other armored units tonight joined Yeltsin's forces, nine of them moving into position around the building. What appears to be developing tonight is a contest for the loyalty of the military, a contest between Boris Yeltsin and the emergency committee. There are troops loyal to both sides around the building where Yeltsin is spending the night. Peter? So all in all, about 4,000 Soviet troops attack their own capital city. Gorbachev ends up staying in Crimea because he's under house arrest, but knowing that there's probably press around there or some sort of way to show that he's not sick, he makes himself visible as possible on the grounds, taking walks so that he can be seen because of this disinformation about his health. He also refuses outside food because he fears, he fears that they're going to try to poison him. In Moscow, Yeltsin narrowly escapes capture as he is on his way back to Moscow from Kazakhstan. He, what he does is he has his flight rerouted to head toward his own Dhaka, which is right outside the city. Now, the KGB are waiting for him there, but for reasons that really are cloudy, they don't arrest him. They refuse to. And this allows Yeltsin and his team to gather themselves, communicate what is going on to the Soviet people, and spread their own anti-coup propaganda. The propaganda in this case, in, the, in, in, in any attempted coup, really, propaganda is really, really important because you have to control the narrative. Because if you control the narrative, you can get people to understand exactly what's going on in your terms and be on your side. So Yeltsin knows that and he gets it out right away. And this includes calls for general strikes by workers. Remember, the ideals of the Soviet Union, despite Stalinism, 
despite the authoritarian totalitarianism that happened, the basic ideals that Lenin took were of the rights of the proletariat. And one of the tactics that labor has always had and used to varying degrees of success is the strike. So he calls for general strikes by workers in support of the Soviet government. Some of these start happening and various public figures come out for each side of the coup. So this is not a secret anymore. People know what's going on. Meanwhile, the citizens of Moscow start gathering at the parliament building, which funny enough is called the White House. And they start to gather there to show support for both Yeltsin and Gorbachev. They not only do that, they begin building barricades around the building. At around 5 o'clock that afternoon, Yanayev holds a press conference saying that a state of emergency has been declared, essentially reiterating what was in that press release I kind of blundered my way through. And he reiterates that Gorbachev's old and frail and sick. However, this doesn't work the way he thinks it's going to because the press, which by this time was seeing more freedom because of Gorbachev's policies, did not feel intimidated the way they would have under like Khrushchev or Brezhnev or Stalin. So they start noticing that Yanayev has a very nervous body language and they start pressing him on the rumors of the coup attempt. I cannot state more the need for freedom of the press. It's what keeps things like this from happening. It's what keeps authoritarians from taking total control and power. And what this does, it makes him look weak on television. And it helps get public support for Gorbachev and Yeltsin. And like I said, it's really Yeltsin who emerges as the winner in this entire series of events. With Gorbachev stuck in Crimea under house arrest, he's able to return to Moscow. And he's a, and Yeltsin's a very public figure of the resistance. On the evening of the 19th, he heads to those barricades that Citizen sets up. He stands on top of a tank and he addresses a crowd of supporters. It's a bold, strong, deliberate act designed to make the news that evening. Again, he knew appearance, propaganda, strength mattered to the people, and he got out and did that. And it's not a surprising move. Public relations, public image, it's a huge part of politics. You have a group that is trying to destroy the freedoms you're cultivating. And when you're cultivating freedoms in a state that has been authoritarian for the better part of almost 45, 50 years, those freedoms at that stage, they are very fragile. So you want to come out and stand up on a tank and say, we're not standing for this. We are going to resist. We've come too far to let these people try to take it away from us. So by August 20th, Moscow, especially the Parliament building, is essentially under siege. Yanayev's Moscow military district commander Nikolai Kalinin declared a curfew. Government officials came out in support of Yeltsin. And at one o'clock in the morning on the 21st, an actual attack on the parliament building commences. The building is defended by citizens. They set up barricades using trolley buses and street cleaning machines. In the attack, three citizens are killed trying to stop the military advance. I'll get a little more in depth on that incident in a moment, but what I will say is that this is a turning point. It scares the belligerents on both sides, and the military who is trying to overthrow the government stands down. 
The leaders of the coup then attempt to meet with Gorbachev, but he still refuses to speak to them. He still refuses to give in to any demands. And once he is able to get his communications back, it's over. They are all stripped of power. They are all arrested except for Boris Pugo because he dies by suicide instead of facing arrest and trial. The effects here are immediate. Like I said, right after the coup, a number of Soviet republics start breaking away from the country. In fact, as I also mentioned, this is when Estonia and Latvia declared their independence. Although, again, that was in the works for a while, but, you know, I think they saw their opportunity. The flag of Russia, as I mentioned, was changed from its from its then current one of the Soviet hammer and sickle flag with a blue stripe to the red to the blue white white blue and red tricolor that we currently see. There are investigations into the coup, and this effectively ends the Communist Party in the Soviet Union. Gorbachev did try to keep things together. He did kind of take that line of, well, not every communist is bad. You know, not all communists, not all socialists, not all Soviets. But it wasn't going to work. And he ended up resigning his post as premier in, on August 24th. And then his replacement resigned on the 29th when the Supreme Soviet suspended the Communist Party's activities. Yeltsin banned the Russian uh, Communist Party entirely in Russia on November 6th. Now, this is a monumental event in Soviet Russian history, and in my research, I found a great archive of people's personal stories that I will link to in the show notes. There's a collection of I was there or here's what I remember stories from citizens of Moscow and the Soviet Union, from those who had intimate knowledge of everything and were there to those who watched it on television and were a couple of degrees removed. And the one event that many of them seem to hold as the most important was that violent confrontation early in the morning of the 21st between citizens and the military that led to three civilians' deaths. What happened there on the morning of the 21st was that at one of the barricades, which was in front of a tunnel, infantry fighting vehicles, or IFVs, as well as some APCs, were advancing on the people. Dmitry Komar tried to cover an IFV's observation slit and was shot and then crushed to death. Vladimir Yusov was killed by a stray bullet while helping to help Komar. And finally, when the crowd set fire to an IFV, Ilya Krzyzewski was shot and killed as the troops in the IFV fled the fire. Now, all three, like I said, they were all civilians. They had all shown up at the barricades to help. And Komar, who was the one who was shot and then crushed, he was a veteran of the Afghanistan war. The Afghanistan war had only ended two years prior. And this demoralized the Soviet faithful in a way similar to the demoralization in the malaise that the Vietnam War caused through the 60s and especially the 1970s. These three people became martyrs for the cause of democracy, freedom, and human rights in the Soviet Union and Russia, especially because of the way that their death shocked people on both sides. Thousands attended their funeral in Moscow. So I'm going to close out this segment with some excerpts from a piece called Three Steps Outside the Gulag. Uh, this is on a website called Voices from an Attempted Soviet Coup. It was compiled by Anya Chernikovskaya, John Jurek, PhD, and Nikolai Lam. It's a very actually long piece. It's much longer than what I'm going to have, so I'll link to it so you can read the entire thing as well as the uh, show notes. This is by Anya Chernyshkovskaya, who is one of the editors. 
So she is talking about, um, she's writing from her point of view, uh, wrote this as almost like a diary entry right after everything. So she says, I have just come home from the funeral. Along with hundreds of thousands of other people, we have been burying three, the three men, Dmitry Kovar, Vladimir Yusuf, and Ilya Krzyzewski, who died in the tunnel in the center of Moscow on the night of August the 20th, 21st. They did not know one another, but when the troop carrier, which had momentarily come to a halt again, jerked into movement, Vladimir Yusuf, who had rushed to the aid of Dmitry Kovar, was crushed under the APC's track and left a few moments later. Ilya Krzyzewski was shot dead. Their deaths changed nothing on the battlefield, but their spilt blood brought us all a little closer together. It took the funeral procession almost the whole day to walk from Red Square to Vagankovo Cemetery. We walked in a veil of silence. Alongside me was a taxi driver struggling to keep his anger to himself. On the other side, 16-year-old Lena and her boyfriend Kostya walked hand in hand. They had spent the whole three days of the coup at Parliament House. To Lena's surprise, their parents had not been angry. Ahead of me was a group of journalists, friends. They weren't there on business, but because we all knew what it had been like to work as reporters prior to the invent of Glasnost and Perestroika six years ago, and we all felt a debt to these people for the price they had paid to prevent the return of those days. When thousands of boots are shuffling along the road and there is no other sound, the silence indeed becomes palpable. For a moment, I felt that image from the gulag welling up. An armed guard with his German shepherd, the accursed warning breaks the tension of silence. A step to the left, a step to the right, the guard will shoot without warning. The infamous blessing of the prison convoys. But we weren't in the gulag now. Stalin's network of forced labor and prison camps stretching the length of the country, which even today has not been fully dismantled. We no longer wanted to be an obedient herd on its way to the slaughterhouse, and with our resistance to the coup, we had already taken a huge step away from the path the party and state had laid out for us. We pushed on to the cemetery. Five days had passed since the beginning of events. Only five days. But what days? In true fascist tradition, the bastards had acted in the middle of the night, the time of thieves and babes troubled by burgeoning dreams. One should not tempt fate, but there had not been any blood on that first day. We all know about Pinochet in Chile, who drowned his country in blood. And we didn't need to be reminded that August the 20th had been the date our tanks, backed up by the East Germans and the Poles, rolled into Czechoslovakia in 1968. Perhaps that was why I was now thinking of a certain Russian writer who said of the works of a contemporary of his, he tries to frighten us, but we're used to it. By Tuesday, fear had begun to give way to bewilderment and even faint hope. APC and tank drivers on battle alert pulled their lumbering behemoths up in the center of town. Within 15 minutes, people were feeding the soldiers ice cream and pizza. These soldiers were meant to be killers, but it didn't seem that way as they were tucking into the slabs of pizza being offered from bright red and white cardboard pizza hut boxes, an image from the very heartland of the enemy of whom the emergency committee were so afraid. On the ring road, the tank drivers were more interested in making money than launching any assault. For 10 kopecks, the metro cost 15 at the time, they were letting kids get inside these growling mechanical monsters. The kids squeal with delight, jump around on the armor plating, and try to push the cannon around. 
The tanks dangle around the streets of Moscow like a raggedy necklace. Cars squeeze it up, rush under their protruding barrels. Girls are flirting with soldiers from the better regiments. Older women feel sorry for the bedraggled ranks, hardly the image of warriors, and they are feeding them with food from home. And as they hand out the food, they gently ask them to go somewhere else. The people in the rain at the White House are feeling a lot calmer than the vast majority who have stayed at home with the doors locked, getting drunk on a cocktail of telephone calls and rumors mixed with a dash of truth bubbling out of the TV and radio. When dawn broke Wednesday, I cooked 30 hamburgers and packed them in a box. Taking what bread we had, I set off for the White House to feed the people who had been there overnight. Plastered everywhere about the metro were pamphlets giving details about the moves of the emergency committee and counter moves by the Russian government and defenders of Parliament House. Rumors of fighting during the night and of dead and wounded were being whispered on the platform. However, on arriving at the White House, it quickly became clear that the situation had already taken a turn for the better, and its defenders were already beginning to relax. Word had come through the tanks were on their way out of Moscow. People were wandering about the streets in dazed excitement, talking about what they had heard and seen. Alas, the rumors about the dead proved true. Two of them had already been identified. The name of the third was still unknown. A bookworm friend of mine was talking about some 16th century English poet who had written that successful mutiny is not a mutiny, but a contradiction in terms. And it was true. The eight true communists had failed. Their mutiny had been crushed. The victors were already celebrating with fireworks, emotional speeches, and solemn promises of never again. But a bitter taste still lingers. Someone was counting carefully, and the results have already been on the radio. On the first night, from 10 to 15,000 people went to the defense of the White House. By the second night, perhaps 100,000 had turned up. But there are 9 million people in Moscow, not counting the children and the elderly, it is still an enormous number compared to the 100,000. The unwanted question poses itself. Perhaps the coup failed simply because it was poorly organized? I don't want to think about it. An awful possibility, but it cannot be ruled out. Too much that is still unclear lies behind this coup. Too little is known of the coup's genesis for us to feel completely vindicated, for us to celebrate and forget. Too much dread and indifference wove themselves through people's actions those three days for us to feel convinced of the final victory of something called democracy. As Anton Chekhov said, a man can only squeeze the slave out of himself drop by drop. The slave has still not been squeezed out of many of us, but we shall continue this difficult and tedious task with some hope. That'll do it for this segment. I'm going to take a break, and when I get back, I'll be looking at the two movies that won the Cold War, Red Dawn and Rocky IV. Stick around.
time is out of joint. The time is out of joint. The time is out of joint. The year is 1994 or 1944 or maybe 2994. Time is under threat and history is falling apart. Who will survive this crisis and how will history be changed for those that do? Zero Hour Strikes takes you back to that DC Comics crossover and covers the entire story, issue by issue, tie-in by tie-in, as the DC Universe goes down to zero. Join Bass and Siskoid at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on iTunes, Zero Hour Strikes, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Remember Legion. So you just heard the trailer for Red Dawn, the 1984 John Milius film about a Soviet-Cuban invasion of the United States that has this historical distinction of being the very first ever PG-13 movie released in theaters. Debuting on August 10th, 1984, it grossed $38.3 million at the box office, doubling its $17 million budget. It was the 19th highest grossing movie of 1984, just behind Bachelor Party's $38.4 million gross. The top five earners from 1984, by the way, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, The Temple of Doom, The Karate Kid, and Police Academy. I'm going to pause for a moment to let you take in the fact that Police Academy outgrossed Footloose, Beverly Hills Cop, and Star Trek III 
Although Beverly Hills Cops gross stretches from 84 to 85. So that's why box, and box office mojo kind of breaks it in two. Anyway, with that out of the way, as well as our collective acknowledgement that 1984 was a loaded year for movies, I will briefly talk about the plot of the film. In fact, I'm not going to t- spend a ton of time on the plot of either of these films because most people I know who are listening to this are pretty familiar with both Red Dawn and Rocky IV. But like I said, Red Dawn was directed by John Milius. His previous credits include the screenplay for Apocalypse Now, as well as writing and directing Conan the Barbarian, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger in 1982. The cast of Red Dawn features many teenage actors who were either associated with or would go on to be associated with the Brat Pack, one of the more well-known movies of the 80s starring teenagers. And these people are C. Thomas Howell, Charlie Sheen, Patrick Swayze, Leah Thompson, and Jennifer Grey. The adults in the film include Powers Booth, Harry Dean Stanton, Lane Smith, and Superfly's Ron O'Neill. The film opens with a series of title cards that read... Soviet Union suffers worst wheat harvest in 55 years. Labor and food riots in Poland. Soviet troops invade. Cuba and Nicaragua reach troop strength goals of 500,000. El Salvador and Honduras fall. Greens Party gains control of West German Parliament. Demands withdrawal of nuclear weapons from European soil. Mexico plunged into revolution. NATO dissolves. United States stands alone. We then get a title sequence of a flight through clouds with this weird flash dance-esque 80s script for the main title. And maybe I'm the only person who ever found this out of place because I was so used to the way the title was displayed on the poster. And Red Dot has one of the great movie posters. It's just a small town in America at the bottom and the image of several paratroopers dropping in, their parachutes open, against the twilight. And the tagline is, in our time, no foreign country army has occupied American soil until now. And then Red Dawn is in block letters with the same words in Russian right above it. It's, it's a great dramatic poster. You know, you'd see that video cassette case in the video store and be like, ooh, this looks good. Um, that would have looked great on the title instead of like, Flash dance, but Russian invasion. But I, I'm spending too much time on that. I'm sorry. It's just a weird hang-up I've always had about this movie. So anyway, the plot. So we open up with a high school classroom in Colorado, Calumet, Colorado, which is uh, just outside the Rocky Mountains. A teacher is giving a lesson about Genghis Khan when he spots several paratroopers land in the field behind the school. He heads out to investigate, and he is immediately shot dead. The troops then start shooting at the school, and it becomes immediately apparent that this is an invasion force. From here, we follow several of the local teens from the town, who are led by Jed, that's Patrick Swayze, into the mountains. They first work on fleeing and surviving, and then decide to take up arms and become a guerrilla resistance force against the occupying Russian-Cuban army. Naming themselves Wolverines after the school's mascot, they undertake several raids on their occupiers and become effective enough for the enemy's top brass to make a concerted effort to find them and stop them. At one point, they meet Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Tanner, that is Powers Booth, an American pilot who is shot down near them, and he helps them by teaching them military tactics and helping them plan raids. He also gives them in the audience an exposition as to what's happened in the larger scope of the United States in World War III, which is going on. 
Several American cities, including Washington, D.C., were destroyed by nuclear strikes. Strategic Air Command was crippled by Cuban saboteurs. Paratroopers were dropped from airliners to seize key positions in preparation for assaults via Mexico and Alaska. Most of the southern United States and northwestern Canada are occupied by the Soviets, but American counterattacks have halted Soviet advances along the Rockies and the Mississippi, and the lines have stabilized. Remaining U.S. allies, the United Kingdom and China, are crippled. Nuclear fallout concerns from both sides of the, of the war are why they have not further used nuclear weapons. So eventually the Wolverines start to fall, and after they are caught in an ambush with four of them surviving, Jed and his brother Matt, who is Charlie Sheen, undertake a suicide mission to attack the enemy headquarters in the center of Calumet hoping that will keep the Russians occupied long enough for the other two surviving Wolverines, Danny, played by Brad Savage, and Erica, Leah Thompson, to make it to friendly territory. The film ends with a shot of Partisan Rock, which was the name given to the location of the mountains where they had been headquartering themselves and had carved the names of their dead on the rock as a memorial. A plaque is read aloud that says, In the early days of World War III, guerrillas, mostly children, place their names of their lost upon this rock. They fought here alone and gave up their lives so that this nation shall not perish from the earth. Like the day after last episode, Red Dawn is a product of the concern and panic about a possible oncoming war with the Soviet Union that was very real during the early 1980s. Now, whereas the day after was part of the nuclear war subgenre, Red Dawn is part of another subgenre, the Russian invasion film. The other two notable films in the subgenre are the Chuck Norris film Invasion USA, which stars Norris as the man who single-handedly prevents the Soviet Union invasion through Florida, and the 1987 series miniseries America, that's America with a K, starring Chris Christopherson, Sam Neill, Mariel Hemingway, Laura Flynn Boyle, Christine Lottie, and Robert Urich as various characters living in a United States that has been occupied by the Soviet Union for the better part of a decade. Uh, the Chuck Norris movie is what I saw way back in the day, probably 88, 89, when my friends and I would rent any action flick that was available at the video store, especially action flicks put out by Canon Films have not seen it since, so I can't comment on it except to say that if it's anything like Missing in Action, it's really jingoistic. It's an ammo fest. It hits all the Chuck Norris memes. There you go. America is a series that I remember seeing advertised on television back in 1987, but I had never actually seen. It is available on YouTube. It was my intention to watch the entire thing for this episode, but I have to tell you that I could not get through even the first night's worth of an episode. And the whole thing's like 14 hours. It was one of those, you know, long miniseries from back in the 70s and 80s, like, you know, the, the, the golden age of the, of the event television miniseries. And, you know, it might be that with everything that I've been trying to do in prep, I might not have had just the endurance or the headspace for a slow burn miniseries in that way. Um, I may come back to it because I like alternate histories like that. The fact that it's not like an invasion film, but it's just kind of a we're existing and, 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 and things have been taken over type of thing. That does seem very interesting. I've read a couple of here and there over the years, World War II alternate histories with Nazi Germany one, et cetera, and they're always fascinating. 
But I did want to note America here because it is a piece of this genre, subgenre. But I'm going to spotlight Red Dawn in this part of the pop culture segment because that is really the well, most well-known film, probably the most well-regarded film of the pack anyway. I'd say that the concept of a group of ragtag teens being our last hope is really odd, but young adult literature spent the better part of the 2000s dining out on that very concept, so if anything, John Milius and the movie's other screenwriter, Kevin Reynolds, were ahead of their time. Now, I'm not going to call them co-screenwriters, because they did not write it together. The story behind Red Dawn is that Reynolds actually wrote the script. It was called Ten Soldiers. Uh, it was much more pessimistic. It was an overall dour anti-war film. Milius in the studio, which was MGM, kept much of the horrors of war part in the rewrite. They ultimately turned it into a pro-American piece that fit right into the Reagan 80s. The film plays into the growing patriotic sentiment of 1984. This was an election year, as I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, was the year of the Los Angeles Olympics. It was the year of mourning in America. The Soviets at this point were still the evil empire. Gorbachev doesn't take power until 85, and we don't really start to get glasnost and perestroika for at least another year or two. So the possibility of some sort of armed conflict with the Soviet Union was still on the table. And it was something that was essentially our rationale for, for the way we interfered in, uh, in armed conflicts in both El Salvador and Nicaragua throughout the 80s, as well as, the, as well as propping up Manuel Noriega in Panama because of our want to make sure that we controlled the Panama Canal. The Russians by this time were familiar villains for us, and many of them were portrayed in the same cold way that we would have expected from Russian military characters of the genre. The film is a solid two hours of American masculinity. It is a piece of propaganda that rivals, and in some cases outdoes, even Chuck Norris. Even if Chuck Norris can grind the coffee with his teeth and boil the water with his rage. All right, there's my one Chuck Norris joke for the entire episode. So making the Russians and their Cuban allies the enemy makes this a propaganda piece right up front, and the whole ordinary American kids being the protagonist adds to it. I am sure that Milius could have gone full John Wayne with this and, does, and done a full-blown war movie, but that honestly doesn't land with audiences of that day who had soured on that type of film. Because if you think about it, there aren't a ton of full-blown war movies in the 80s in the vein of Back to Bataan or The Green Berets. The war movies that we saw were more introspective and critical of war, like Platoon and Full Metal Jacket, both of which focus on the previous decade's failure in Vietnam and the horror of war. Or, if they weren't those, the action movies were individualistic. They were more fantasy than war. Commando, Predator, Rambo. Yes, they intersected with the whole idea of war in the military, but it was always one man, not a unit, etc. And even though movies, and even though there were movies that were military focused, Top Gun, Navy SEALs, they kind of came off as more of like how cool this all is, as opposed to say a statement about America. I mean, there was a statement about America, but it was. The, the sheen of it all, no pun intended here, was was more important than what we got here in Red Dawn, which is flat out raw, raw patriotism. 
Now, in this film, Mil Milius didn't have a Schwarzenegger for the bombast. He didn't have a Stallone, but he does have that individual can-do spirit, and that would land a little bit better. Remember, it's part of the American mythology that regular people took up arms to win us our freedom, and damn it, we're going to do it again in this film, Wolverines! Yeah? You know, as ridiculous as the success of the Wolverines is through much of the film, it's not completely unrealistic, especially in the way that Milius sets us up. There's not a ton of exposition, because unlike the day after, we're dropped right into the invasion, or more appropriately, the invasion is dropped right into the film. But the kids fleeing into the mountains and having enough supplies, that is set up really well, really right away in a way that makes total logical sense. Jed and Matt mentioned at least once that they know the mountains because they were raised in a family that hunts. So they go up to those mountains to hunt deer all the time. They get this supplies at first from a store that's owned by family. So you can see how they would be able to survive for at least a short period of time using what they've learned from camping and hunting for years up in the mountains. And it does take them weeks to start becoming a resistance force because they survive on what they can. And then you can tell that once they feel survival is ensured to a certain extent, they can start to uh, be able to do something about their situation, especially after they start having to go back into town to get more stuff where they can. Now, it's not that simple, um, you know, because Milius needs to have character development here, but he also feels the need to inject the film with we're American men now, not boys, we're men moments that are more in your face than an early 90s Tim Allen stand-up bit. I mean, I'd expect nothing less from the guy who directed Conan the Barbarian. But the scene where Swayze helps see Thomas Howell kill a deer and then drink its blood is one of the biggest whip-your-dick-out moments in 1980s cinema. Jonathan Bernstein, in his outstanding mid-90s book called Pretty in Pink, The Golden Age of Teenage Movies, does a great job summarizing and analyzing the film. And he says of this scene really quickly, deride it for the ludicrous man-mythologizing scenes like the one in which Jed makes a Viking out of a whimpering Robert, see Thomas Howell, by killing a deer and forcing him to drink the blood kind of makes you feel different in, inside, observes Bob. <sighs> now, despite my very snarky tone here, the concept of all of this does work, at least in the way that Milius wants it to. Another good resource that I found while doing a little bit of research here was a site called We Are the Mutants. It's entirely dedicated to the well, Cold War pop culture or pop culture of the Cold War decades. And I can't believe I just found it just now. You'd think I'd have seen this for years, but just found it now. Anyway, a post from 2018 called Avenge Me! American Catharsis in 1980s Soviet Invasion Fantasies. And that line, Avenge Me, is spoken by Harry Dean Stanton in a scene where they sneak toward the re-education camp the Russians have set up and they see their parents like through the through the chain link fence and you know they get away and Harry Dean Stanton calls out, Avenge Me! So the conversation in this blog post uh, elucidates the themes behind the subgenre and how it's less a warning or feeding of our own paranoia, you know, the way these types were uh, films were in the 50s, 
but a way to boost our confidence, especially considering that Red Dawn, Invasion, USA, America, and other media were all about a conventional war and not the nuclear holocaust that we saw depicted in the day after Thread's Testament and the other films that Michael Bailey and I looked at last episode. Milius' politics are out front here, and it is meant to be an in-your-face display of American masculinity and fighting spirit, a spirit that, according to the authors of the Post, appeals to the Second Amendment right supporters out there. I can see that. I do agree with their assertion that the American public at the time was thinking less about a Soviet invasion than they were about a nuclear war. So Red Dawn is more of a fantasy, a we did it before and we'll do it again reminder of the story of the early days of the Revolutionary War with the Minutemen and our liberty hanging by a thread at Valley Forge. In fact, Ron O'Neill's Bella, and he's a Cuban, and he remembers his own revolution. He's the one of the enemy that has the respect for the, the kids, for the Wolverines throughout the film. He has this character arc. He understands them. He understands their motivation. And by the end of the movie, he's so disillusioned by having to operate in the Soviet military machine that when he comes face to face with Jed and Matt in his final battle, he lets them go because he's about to quit himself. It's almost like Milius was like calling upon the spirit of the Monroe Doctrine or something, you know, like the Cubans would have all would have been on their side if the Soviets hadn't interfered or something. And the Cubans actually do understand the spirit of America. They're just being unduly influenced because, you know, again, the Monroe Doctrine is like, we're the, we're the protector of all the Americas. Finally, what I don't get is how solitary the Wolverines seem to be in their efforts. Now, I have seen Red Dawn a number of times since I first sat down and watched it on video or syndicated television in the late 80s. I was watching it this time. I wondered why Powers Booth's character happened to be just a random pilot. You know, they see this combat, air combat mission over the occupied territory, an American pilot gets shot down, they find him, etc., etc. Why not an American soldier who was sent into the occupied territory, maybe with an infiltration unit, and their mission was to find the Wolverines so they can provide military support? Furthermore, what he says is that they've heard about the kids and it's like a morale booster that there's people and the kids on the inside, you know, the, the, the kids have become um, inspiration, symbols. He doesn't really mention any other resistance force in, an, in the occupied territory. He just recaps what's been happening on the military's front lines. Now, for that's helpful because it gives us the larger scope without having to see it because we've been very isolated in Calumet through the entire movie. So we get a little bit of context. It's a little bit of good exposition. But surely there were other groups, right? There, were, there had to be other groups like the Wolverines. And surely because the military did exist, I mean, the entire United States was not taken over. Parts of it, a big portion of it still was the United States and the lines to stabilize. So at this point... Surely there were other groups like the Wolverines in the occupied territories, and surely the military could help connect them via some sort of, I don't know, underground network of communication. They could run supply lines along the disputed territory or neighboring territories. You know, it would be more realistic instead of just this fantasy of a lone group of teenagers. Oh, shit, I just advocated for the Viet Cong. Anyway, now at the beginning of the show... 
I shared an excerpt from a piece on, on the 2019 Captain Marvel film that was critical of its military propaganda. And I related it to movies like Top Gun and television shows like G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero. And they were in heavy rotation in my house during the 80s. The military and Hollywood have had a pretty close relationship uh, for decades. And uh, by Reagan's second term, we were trending toward the sentiment that we were, well, not so much healed from Vietnam, but we were over Vietnam. And I think there's a difference. So it was, and, and the difference is that, oh, soldiers can be seen as heroes again and things like that. You know, at least that was the narrative being pushed on one side. And we'd see a similar narrative in the 2000s to a furious degree. And people would find themselves being completely canceled for having a dissenting opinion about our military involvement in the Middle East. We weren't there yet in 84, 85, and 86, but it would build toward it with smaller scale military actions, Granada, Panama, and then eventually Desert Storm. These were obvious demonstrations of our military might and the idea that we were no longer to be messed with. Again, we were over Vietnam. And for every platoon, there was a Hamburger Hill or Heartbreak Ridge, the Clint Eastwood movie. That actually showed our invasion of Granada in its action-filled climax. But the best piece of 1980s Cold War propaganda, not a military movie. It's a boxing movie. The Soviet Union has officially entered professional boxing. This is not just an exhibition fight, but this is us against them. He would like to compete against anyone who is qualified. Drago is the most perfectly trained athlete ever. Whatever he hits, he'll be strong. He could have stopped the fight. He could have saved his best friend's life. I'll never forget you, Paul. But now, the one thing he can't do is walk away. Has the fight date been set yet? December 25th. Where? It's in Russia. Are you nuts? Miss Balboa, when will you be going to Russia? I'm not going to Russia. I don't know what you're talking about. He's had one professional fight, and one man is dead. Tabibi, he's going to have to kill me. Why can't you change your thinking? Because I'm a fighter. You can't win! Written and directed by Sylvester Stallone, Rocky IV was released on November 27th, 1985. It would go on to gross $127.8 million at the box office, making it the fourth highest grossing movie of 85 and the 24th highest grossing film of 1986. Again, box office mojo breaks up the film across if it 
across two years if it was released late in the year. For 1985, by the way, the three films that outgrossed Rocky IV were Back to the Future, Beverly Hills Cop, and uh, Rambo, another Stallone movie. Rocky IV also remains the highest grossing film of the Rocky franchise. So the story of the film is that Ivan Drago, played by Dolph Lundgren, he is, comes to the U.S. He is the top Soviet boxer. He is an Olympic champion. He is deciding to go professional and throw his uh, gloves into the ring of the World Boxing Association, etc. Now, Rocky at this point is still the reigning heavyweight champion. Uh, he'd regained the title from Clubber Lang at the end of Rocky III. He doesn't have really interest in fighting Drago, though. But Apollo Creed, who was Rocky's challenger from the first two films and friend and trainer from the end of Rocky III, decides to come out of retirement to fight Drago. The politics of the situation, along with the hostility between the two boxers, results in a brutal fight wherein Drago kills Apollo in the ring. Rocky then decides to fight Drago in Russia on Christmas Day. He flies with Pauly to the Soviet Union and begins the training in Siberia while Adrian stays at home, fearful that Rocky is going to suffer the same fate as Apollo. Rocky's training does not go well at first. He's living in a log cabin in the middle of the wilderness and is being closely monitored by the KGB. But once Adrian shows up in Siberia and tells Rocky that she thinks he can win or wants him to win, things turn around. The fight between Rocky and Drago is long and brutal. Both boxers exchange blows for a long time. Rocky does get some hits in early on and proves that Drago, who prior to this was more or less a machine, is in fact human. The longer Rocky stays in the match, the more the crowd, which started off as hostile, begins to cheer for him. Drago's trainers reprimand him repeatedly, and as the 12th round commences, Drago turns on his trainers and even points in the direction of Mikhail Gorbachev, who is in attendance, that he fights for no one but himself. It's in that round where Rocky wins, knocking Drago out and making a speech to the crowd where he thanks them for his support and says, if I can change and you can change, everybody can change. It sounds like a thin plot synopsis, but that's because it's a really thin plot. The thing about Rocky IV is that it's an hour and a half movie that's like 45 minutes to an hour of actual dialogue, and the entire rest of the movie is montages. It is a ridiculously dumb film that does not hide its intentions, which is why I have to respect it, at least if I'm giving my opinion here. I mean, I watched it for this episode. I hadn't watched it like all the way through in like a decade, maybe more, but... I had this entire film memorized right down to the twin training montages of Rocky failing and then Rocky winning that are bridged by just a couple of minutes of Adrian showing up to say that she supports him, which really is the only reason she exists in this film and in Rocky three. Seriously, I hope Talia Shire was paid well because whatever character development she had in Rocky and Rocky two was completely thrown out the window in Rocky three and Rocky four. I haven't seen Rocky Five in a very long time, so I can't tell you about whether or not they actually give something back to her in Five. Anyway, while this film isn't about military might, it celebrates that American masculinity that I was talking about in the Red Dawn segment. And then it uses Rocky's victory, where he's draped in the American flag. It's on the cover of the video box, guys, um, as a way to drive home that masculinity. And that said masculinity is a force for good in the world. Whereas Red Dawn has red-blooded American boys turning into red-blooded American men by killing eating red-blooded American deer and drinking that red-blooded American red-blooded deer blood, Rocky has the shorter 
oiled up American champion fighting the hulking oiled up cold Soviet machine like warrior. Seriously, there's a lot of body oil in this movie, enough that I'm pretty sure you could finance an entire independent film like a Jim Jarmusch film on the body oil budget for Rocky IV. Anyway, to emphasize Drago's machine-like coldness, this guy's got like five lines in the entire movie, really. I'm not the only person to make that joke, by the way. In fact, when Dolph Lundgren was cast as He-Man in the canon live-action Masters of the Universe film, quality film, by the way, love it, Stallone was the one who joked, you're giving this guy lines? But back to the propaganda of it all. I could riff on this movie all day. Um, Rocky IV works. It works on that level because it shows how we ultimately win the Cold War, which is through much of our media and our entertainment. It's something I've brought up numerous times over the course of this series through uh, songs, heavy metal and, and music and things like that, the Olympics, um, and other, other things of this era. It's also an affirmation of our victory over the fight that started in the 50s with McCarthyist propaganda like Red Nightmare and Is This Tomorrow, which I looked at in the first couple of episodes of this miniseries. Because by 1985 and 1986, the Soviet Union was on the verge of a major change. And movies like Rocky IV are there in part to tell American audiences in the world that the need for paranoia about communist takeover is unnecessary. Because America is better. And if we believe that and display that, then we're going to win. And we were going toward that, that winning. We were going toward that win. Now, I think a good case can be made for the Soviets more or less kind of losing the Cold War rather than America winning it, especially when you start looking at the circumstances surrounding the collapse of the Soviet Union. They were a lot of things the Soviets did to themselves. The devastating war in Afghanistan, a crumbling economy and infrastructure. Yeah, a case can be made for America giving things a push. And we certainly took advantage of the situation where we needed to. So I'm not going to discount that. But it's more complicated and nuanced than oversimplified media and history textbook presentations. 1986 really is the turning point because of Gorbachev and because of Chernobyl. And Chernobyl winds up being a true game changer because it is the point where the Soviets cannot hide how bad things are. And that's where we start getting those policies that lead to the coup that I talked about in the first half of this episode, as well as the Soviets' ultimate disillusion. As for Rocky IV, well, Stallone knew exactly what he was doing. His riding the patriotism was cresting as a result of Reagan's re-election, the 84 Olympics, and a rebounding economy. He also knew that American strength was the way to box office dollars, and no sequence in the film epitomizes that more than the final trading montage set to Hearts on Fire by John Cafferty. Coming after a Vince DiCola-fueled montage of Rocky trying and failing to successfully train and then Adrian showing up, blah, 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 we see Drago in a training facility that has the most advanced technology imaginable while Rocky trains by chopping wood, lifting logs, jumping rope, doing one-handed push-ups, lifting his housemates over a support beam in the cabin, and then ultimately running up a mountain to scream, Drago. If there is not more of a USA, USA, USA moment in 80s film, I do not know what it is. This is a film that still warms the hearts of even the most cynical of us late Gen Xers. 
because with it comes the nostalgia and the fond memories of not just the fights with Drago, but the killer soundtrack of Vince DiCola's synth pieces. Heck, his piece War, which opened the show. That was the song my college intramural softball team used to use to psych ourselves up before every game. Oh yeah, we were dorks. Anyway, this film, it's a film of its time. It's a soundtrack of its time. And I might add, it's the subject of one of the best parodies of an ESPN 30 for 30 I've ever seen. But with the climax of a 40-year conflict between the two global superpowers in a boxing film, what happens next? Where does our entertainment turn? Well, that's what I'm going to look at next episode. Then the next episode will be the penultimate episode of our miniseries. This will be the slate of movies that came out around the very end of the 80s and, the, and maybe a little bit in the early 90s, where the Russians were, in a manner of speaking, our friends. From the military thriller The Hunt for Red October, the buddy cop movie Red Heat, and the kids' adventures flick Ruskies, Hollywood was showing us how the once cold, once evil Reds were either embracing American ideals or we're not evil as we once thought. So come back in November for that episode. And then come back on December 31st for the final episode of this mini-series where I talk about the very last days of the Soviet Union. Until then, get in touch with me via email or Facebook and Twitter to let me know what you think about the series so far as well as this episode. And as always, thanks for listening and take care. This has been an episode of Fallen Walls, Open Curtains, a podcast mini-series brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. You can find show notes and other information about this mini-series and the blog Pop Culture Affidavit at popcultureaffidavit.com. You can find episodes of the show and other great shows at twotruefreaks.com. The Facebook group for this show is facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. You can follow me on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. All clips used are for informational and illustrative purposes only and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you very much for listening and come back next time for the next chapter in the end of the Cold War.